The Yaley, the YDN podcast covering the biggest news stories of each week. We are your hosts, Nick Vallee and Georgiana Grinstaff. In this episode, we are covering the series of articles written by Jordan Fitzgerald and Philip Musavizadeh, which highlight the ongoing lawsuits involving Yale University. Welcome to The Yaley, Jordan and Philip. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, Philip, your recent article concerns the legal battle at Yale Law School. Could you please give us a brief rundown of what the lawsuit is all about? Right. So two students at Yale Law School have sued the university and a series of administrators at Yale Law School, alleging that they, the quote they give is, is blackballed them from job opportunities after they refused to endorse a statement in the ongoing investigation against law professor Amy Chua. Professor Chua has been under investigation at Yale Law School following allegations of misconduct. And according to this lawsuit, the two students, Gavin Jackson and Sierra Stubbs, who are initially unnamed in the lawsuit, are the subject of a 20-page file of emails and texts which became central to the investigation into Professor Chua's behavior. The students allege that this dossier, as they refer to it, puts them at the center of this feud and that a number of administrators within Yale Law School pressured two students to substantiate claims within this dossier against Professor Chua. They allegedly said no and rejected these approaches by administrators and were retaliated against in in the form of lost opportunities and defamation of character. Do the identified students, Sierra Stubbs and Gavin Jackson, have any evidence of how they were blackballed from jobs and other opportunities? Right. So there was a little bit of legal gymnastics that went into this. In the initial filing, the lawyer alleges that one of the students didn't receive what's called the Coker Fellowship at Yale Law School, which is one of the most prestigious fellowships in the legal community. The language they use isn't that she didn't get it, it's that she didn't take it or do it, which makes it seem like she didn't do it as a result of her defamation of character. What actually happened is that she received the fellowship nevertheless, but chose not to take it for other personal reasons that she alleges is connected to the case. You know, part of the motion to dismiss that the university filed most recently goes right to this question of yours, which is that university says you guys are simply speculating that there is injury here and you only have standing in court when you have actual injury that you can demonstrate. Do you have an idea on whether the university's motion to dismiss the case will be passed? Right. So I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to speculate as to whether this motion will pass or not. The only other significant ruling in this case was when the judge denied the students their motion to proceed pseudonymously under Jane and John Doe, forcing them to continue this lawsuit under their actual names. I don't think that that reveals particularly much, and experts who we've spoken to agree The only interesting thing about this motion to dismiss is that when you file a motion to dismiss, you're not filing a rebuttal strictly. You're actually just asking for the entire case to be tossed because you think it's illegitimate. And in doing so, were such a motion to pass, the process, what's called discovery, wouldn't take place by which the university would be compelled to hand over documents pertaining to this lawsuit. So part of the reason for this motion to dismiss, some have speculated, is that the university doesn't want to go through the process of discovery. But again, that's just speculation and we can only go with what we know. Jordan, in your article about the antitrust case against Yale and other top universities, you mentioned that the defendants are part of the 568 presidents group. Could you tell us more about this group and how it functions? Yeah, so the 568 Presidents Group is a consortium of what is now, I believe, 17 universities, all what we would kind of label as quote unquote elite universities. And they essentially through being part of this group, get to share financial aid formulas for how they calculate aid for prospective students. 
You say that the original lawsuit only charged nine universities. Do you know what led the plaintiffs to add Yale and six other universities to the lawsuit? Yeah, so they actually did sue every university in the group. It was just that they only accused nine universities of practicing need conscious admissions. And so when they amended the complaint, they had already been suing Yale, but they added Yale and seven other universities, plus Johns Hopkins, who hadn't been named in the original suit, in their accusation of who is practicing need conscious admissions. And some professionals speculated that the legal team had anticipated amending the complaint and directly accusing all of the universities of being need conscious from the get go. But the actual legal team didn't specify as to why they didn't on the outset. But the complaint seems to indicate that they uncovered more information later. What does this case mean for students on financial aid? If the plaintiffs win, should students expect to receive more aid in the future? So that's not actually clear because this isn't really a case about how much financial aid people are getting. It's an antitrust case. It's a monopoly case. So what's happening is that think of these universities as individual companies. They're essentially by sharing their financial aid formulas, they're being anti-competitive, which makes them a violation of Section 1 of the Sherman Antitrust Act. So it's not that they're directly being accused of harming students. It's more that they are being accused of being anti-competitive. So that just means that they wouldn't be able to share their financial aid formulas. And it's kind of unclear how that would affect how much aid students directly see. Jordan and Philip, you co-wrote an article about the Supreme Court affirmative action case. How did this lawsuit arise? So in 2014, a group called Students for Fair Admissions sued both Harvard University and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and accused them of discriminating against white and Asian American students in admissions. In the intervening years, those cases have gone through lower courts. SFFA has since sued Yale, but we've gotten to a point where lower courts have fairly consistently decided that the schools were not discriminating against white and Asian Americans. And the Yale case was put on hold until the Supreme Court makes their decision uh, that was decided by the Connecticut courts in April. But yeah, the Supreme Court recently decided that they would merge the two cases. So not see the Harvard case and the UNC case separately, but as one case that addresses the future of affirmative action. And so in January, they decided when we next convened, we're going to take a look at this. We're going to see if Harvard and UNC are discriminating against white and Asian American students. And experts consistently agree that this is not just a question of discrimination. This is a larger decision over whether or not the Supreme Court will still allow American universities to practice affirmative action in admissions. Jordan, in your article regarding legacy admissions, Dean of Admissions Jeremiah Quinlan testifies in their support. Does his testimony represent the popular opinion among other Yale admissions officials? I think Quinlan would say that he only speaks for himself. No one else in the administration has gone on the record to me about their stance on legacy admissions. So I think Quinlan is the person we have to defer to in terms of the admissions office's stance. How do the GPAs and SAT scores of legacy students compare to non-legacies? Yeah. So Quinlan told me in an email several months ago at this point that it is a common misconception that legacy students have lower academic credentials than the overall student body. In fact, the opposite is true. In the last sentence of your article, you cite that Yale has employed legacy preference for 224 of its 320 year existence. Do you know how it came about? 
for a lot of legacy policies at a lot of schools, the emergence of legacy admissions is linked to universities not wanting to admit minority ethnicity students, particularly Jewish ones. So legacy gave them an opportunity to fill spots in the class with those they considered quote unquote desirable. From experiencing classrooms and on campus, do either of you find that legacy status affects social dynamics at Yale? It's undeniable that there is a certain amount of social capital that goes with being a legacy student, whether that be knowledge you actually have about Yale or advantages that you had in the admissions process as someone whose parent attended an elite university. That exists. Whether or not people believe that there should be a direct preference given to students of alumni, that's another question. But it's just one of many perspectives within the Yale student body. And I don't really feel comfortable generalizing about a community that I am not a part of. Jordan and Phillips' articles are available in the university section of the YDN. That's it for the Yaley. We're your hosts, Georgiana Grinstaff and Nick Vallee. Stay tuned for our next episode of The Yaley.